Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. When it comes to our finances, I want people to take control. I want you to stop worrying about the price of an extra appetizer. That's irrelevant in the grand scheme. It's these big things, your house, your car, and your investment fees that really move the needle. If you could only give someone three money tips, what would they be? I'm Ramit Sethi. I'm a New York Times bestselling author, and I teach people how to live their rich life. He's author of the New York Times bestseller, I Will Teach You To Be Rich, has helped tens of millions of people live a rich life. I have a different approach. Instead of looking backwards, I want to look forward. Me? Controversial? I never heard anyone say that. You're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast, the number one business podcast in the U.S., where we talk about entrepreneurship, money, and how to improve your life and achieve success. I'm your host, Erica Kohlberg. I'm a lawyer and personal finance expert with over 20 million followers on social media. Today, I'm talking to Ramit Sethi. He is a money expert, entrepreneur, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, I Will Teach You To Be Rich. And he came here today to do just that. This episode is full of actionable items on how to use your money and how to invest. Make sure to take notes. You'll want to start implementing these things today. If you're ready, let's jump in. I'm Erica Kohlberg. This is Erica Taught Me. And today we're here with Ramit Sethi. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between six to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between six to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28. So go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com slash invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. 
When it comes to money, what is the advice that you give that you think is the most controversial? Me? Controversial? <laughs> I never heard anyone say that. I think that surprisingly, the advice that people take as controversial is my suggestion that for the biggest purchase of your life, a house, you should actually run the numbers. Because sometimes renting is actually a better financial decision than buying. And this freaks people out. It taps into something very deep in our culture, especially in American culture, which says to be successful, you've got to own a house. If you don't, you're a loser who rents. And by the way, when you rent, you are throwing money away. None of those things are true. And so when I encourage people that, for example, I, who could buy a house tomorrow in cash, have rented for the last 15 years and have actually made more money renting than owning, people are like, this guy's insane. It's like he's telling me the sky is green, but it's not. You got to learn how to run the numbers for the biggest purchases of your lives. You should be financially fluent and you should spend a lot of time understanding amortization schedules and opportunity costs. And honestly, you should not spend basically any time worrying about the price of organic grapes. Mm -hmm. There's a difference. We got to ask $30,000 questions, not $3 questions. Okay, so run me through the numbers that matter. Hey, Ramit, I really want to buy my first house. I would say, why do you want to buy a house? I want to live in it and own it and all my friends are buying houses. Yeah. And I want equity and I want to stop throwing money away on rent. And, you know, I, I feel like I'm just wasting money. All these things come about, right? I feel like it's the next step. I go, okay, cool. Let's talk about how to run the numbers to decide if it's a good purchase. So when it comes to owning versus renting, we often have these very simple black or white thoughts. We think if rent costs $3,000 a month and a mortgage costs $3,000 a month, well, I should get the mortgage because I'm building equity. Well, you got to understand that when you own a house, you should add, in my opinion, roughly 50% on top to account for all the phantom costs. Those phantom costs include interest, they include taxes, maintenance, which is huge. Yes, even the roof repair that's gonna cost $20,000 nine years from now, you still need to account for that today. And opportunity costs, meaning the money you put down could be invested elsewhere like the S&P 500. When you run those numbers, often you are surprised. So in cities that are very high cost of living, like San Francisco, LA, New York, it often makes no financial sense to buy. And this is mind blowing to people because they go, well, why would all these people buy? Are you telling me that landlords actually lose money every month? I go, yeah, some of them do. Some landlords lose money, some make money, some don't even know how much their costs actually are. As a renter, your rent is the maximum you will pay every month. As a homeowner, your mortgage is the minimum you will pay. So. I'm not saying it's good or bad to own or rent. I'm saying you have to run the numbers and you have to understand things like an amortization schedule, which would explain why you should typically only plan to buy if you are going to stay there for at least 10 years. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let us assume mortgage is $3,000. We're gonna use your plus 50%. So now I'm assuming about $4,500. Correct. Total out of pocket, although it may not show up today. Yes, if I am someone who's bringing in $8,000 a month, yep. good decision or bad decision? Probably a bad decision, although we'd have to look at all the financials. So there are some good guidelines to use to decide if you should buy a house. Uh, number one would be what percentage of your gross income is it? And this is total cost of ownership. 
total. So just to make the math really easy, if you make $100 a month gross, that's what your paycheck is. The good guideline is that your total cost of ownership should be 28% or less. Now, I know these days housing is extremely expensive, especially in high cost of living cities. That number is impossible to hit for a lot of people. So if you live in, say, New York, LA, et cetera, you can push that number up. You can push it up to 30, 32, 33, 34%. But the higher it goes, the more risk you are taking. Meaning if you and your partner both live there and one of you loses your job, you're out of that house fast. Uh, if you have any sort of healthcare issue, you're out of that house. It's a huge amount of risk. And so when people say spend less than you need to, it is critical to do that on housing. Okay, and so 28% is your first great guideline to say, wow, what is my total cost of ownership? It's not just $3,000 a month, which is what it says on the mortgage, it's 4,500. So you need to be making a lot of money to be able to afford that place. Okay, so let's say that someone is making $75,000 a year. 28% mm -hmm. of that is $21,000. Divided by 12. Divide by 12, $1,750. It's not a lot of money, but you had it right. So. Let's do 75,000 times 0.28. That'll be $21,000 a year that they can technically spend on housing. Fine. And if we divide by 12, 1750 uh, per month, total cost of ownership. So if we look at the typical house and we take the typical amount of maintenance and all kinds of stuff, we might say that that house that your mortgage should be $1,000 or $1,100 a month, that's pretty low. People going, wait a minute, I can't afford that. And so here's a fascinating peculiarity of human psychology. When you tell people, this is a guideline to use, and they look at the guideline and they go, there's no way I can do that. They don't stop and save and slow down. They go, I reject that guideline and I'm going to do what I want anyway. <laughs> and this is how people get into trouble. It's called being house poor. They spend too much on a house. They don't anticipate the phantom costs, all these hidden costs. And suddenly they wake up one day, they go, why do I make $75,000 or $150,000 and we can't afford anything? Why can't we save anything? And they agonize over our spend at Target and oh, we're spending too much on bread. It's not that. It's typically the two things people overspend on way too much, which is housing and cars. And that is primarily the reason why it feels so stressful with money. Yeah. And I also think that one of the things that people don't take into account is just the interest. On a 30-year mortgage, it's huge. Especially you could now. be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on interest. Yeah, I did a, I did a calculation on my social media showing people how roughly a $500,000 house actually costs basically double that over 30 years with a 5.5% interest rate. And some people were blown away. We need to factor these things in because over the course of 30 years, these small percentages can make a huge difference. It would be like flying from Dubai here. If you're off by one degree, you're going to end up in the ocean. <laughs> Especially on that long of a distance, it's the same thing with compounding. And so both on the negative side, which would be debt, like paying off a mortgage, you want to really understand those implications. Same thing on compounding for the positive. Like if you're investing and you are, for example, paying 1% to a financial advisor for fees, over the course of your life, that's going to result in basically 28% of your returns going out of your pocket and into theirs. So in both directions, 
for big things in our life, we need to become financially fluent. For little things, like, you know, again, the price of apples, who really cares? Yeah. Okay, let's dig into cars then. All right. What's the mistake that people are making when it comes to cars? Well, number one mistake is they go and they, they ask for financial advice from the car salesman. Insane. It's like asking for financial advice from your realtors. Never take financial advice from a realtor or a car salesman, please. <laughs> and the car salesman, Mr. Chet, Chet walks in, oh, so uh, oh, Ramit, how much you want to pay every month? That's how they talk. They literally say, how much do you want to pay every month? If somebody ever says that to you, you look them right in the eye, you say, Chet, don't ever talk to me about monthly payments. We talk TCO in here, total cost of ownership. Why? Because um, on a monthly basis, the car salesman can craft essentially however much you want to pay. They'll just stretch it out for 60 months, 72 months, 84 months, or beyond. But if you look at TCO, that can dramatically change how you think about your car. So for example, uh, I saw a recent comparison of a Tesla versus a Toyota Camry. The Tesla cost $38,000. The Toyota Camry cost, let's just say $28,000 approximately. If you're simply looking at the price at the top, you go, oh, I should get the Camry. But if you factor in gas and a variety of other things, over the course of a long period of time, the Tesla actually turns out to be cheaper. Now, I hate to promote a Tesla on here because, first of all, Elon Musk, but we want to look at the total cost of ownership, not simply the sticker price and not simply a monthly payment. And so that is the number one mistake people make. Are people also not negotiating enough when they go to buy yeah, a car? Yeah, Americans hate negotiating. They don't know how to negotiate. They're scared of negotiating. They walk in and they say stuff like, uh, I'd like to pay um, maybe 600 and then the car dealer's like, gotcha, because they know that this person is just completely defenseless. You walk in and you, first of all, have lots of options. You're never asking advice from the car salesman. You can go for a test drive. You can say, you know, which model do you like? But ultimately, they are trying to make a commission off you. When it comes to negotiation, oh, I absolutely love this. So I, I negotiated my car. I had a third-party service, which I used, called Fighting Chance. And I spent, I don't remember how much it was, maybe 50 bucks. I got a report on the exact model that I wanted to buy, how much it cost the dealers. And so back then we were using faxes and we were doing emails. And I sent around a bunch of messages to dealers. And I was like, okay, here's the exact car I want. Here's the model. I'm ready to buy. This is how, uh, I'd like to know what is your best price and I will be speaking with other dealers. Whoever does the best price will get my business. Now, because I had all my information, they started fighting, right? They, and I found a dealer who was about 100 miles away, drove to the dealer, got the car, got a very good deal. And that is the first part of negotiating. The second part is I've driven that car forever. So that, again, cars are not, my money dial. It's not the thing that I love. I'm not a car person, at least at this point in my life. But when you stretch out how long you own that car, the actual uh, cost goes way down. Same as a house. So if you only own it for five years and you sell it, you're essentially making no money. You're probably going to lose money. Even if you think you made, you sold it for $100,000 more when you factor in taxes and interest and commissions, boom, you probably lost money. With a car, if you hold it for three, four, five years, same thing. But if you stretch it out for, let's say, 10, 12, every marginal year drops that 
overall price way lower. And that is the way to do it. Buy the best, keep it for as long as possible. How long have you had this car for? 17 years. Are you worried that it's going to break down on you? No, the car's awesome. I bought a Honda. <laughs> well, I'm Indian, so of course I bought a Honda. It's a great, very sensible four-door Honda. The thing is fantastic. The only problem is it has no Bluetooth and it has no screen. It has no nothing. So I have a fantasy that one day, my wife too, we're like, one day we're going to have USB in this car. And that's when we know we made it. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Okay, another big thing I'm excited to talk about, you alluded to it briefly, was the financial advisors and how even that 1% fee they take from you, even though I'm sure they'll say, oh, it's just 1%. It's really a much bigger issue. Yeah, that's one of the reasons that I'm so glad that you are doing what you're doing and that in the financial community, there's so many people from all different diverse backgrounds talking about money and sharing money. I think that there are a specific time and place that a specific group of people can benefit from an advisor. I have hired a financial advisor myself. I paid him an hourly fee. It was a healthy fee. I did not negotiate it. I paid him exactly what his rate was. And I hired him for a very specific project, okay? In my case, it was, hey, I've got my asset allocation. I just want a second set of eyes to make sure I'm not missing anything. There are other examples of when people might want to take uh, hire a financial advisor. It'd be like, you're approaching retirement, you have a complex financial situation. But for the vast majority of people, I believe you can manage your money yourself, and you should. Financial advisors can be fine, but never, ever pay a percentage of assets under management. Never. There's no reason to. And when you actually understand how the costs work, you will almost vomit. 1% sounds like a little bit. Uh, you know, I ask people, how much are you paying your advisor? They go, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. It's somewhere in the documents. I go, I fucking know. It's probably 1% or 1.25%. They go, oh, okay, I'll look. I go, let me get this straight. You have 34 spreadsheets set up to track the different prices of organic beef. You drive an extra five miles to save three cents a gallon on gas, but you don't know that you're paying 1.25%. And it actually makes a lot of sense. What does 1% mean to anybody? Nothing. It's like, ah, oh, 1% for somebody to be out there looking out for me, picking stocks. Oh, that sounds reasonable to me. I go, do you understand how compounding works? And this is where they look at me. They're like, no, I don't. This is why I'm talking to you. I go, okay. 1% does not sound like a lot, especially if you have $100 to start out. Okay, they're taking $1, ah, it's fine. But as that number grows, as your portfolio grows, that 1% also grows. It's not 1% once, it's 1% per year of total assets under management. And so when your portfolio grows large, 100,000, a million, three million, those numbers accumulate in advisors who are charging AUM, assets under management, make their money on the back end, at the end. I don't want you to pay 1%. Sometimes I see people, they send me their documents, they're paying 1.25% plus their advisors are putting them in high or expensive funds. So they're making money one, two, three, four, five ways, back end, front end, expense ratios, all kinds of garbage, horseshit. I go, we don't need this. We can pick simple low cost funds. You could do it yourself. You could pick a target date fund. Your expenses will be like 0.05%. And so when it comes to our finances, I want people to take control. I want you to stop worrying about the price of an extra appetizer. That's irrelevant in the grand scheme. It's these big things, your house, your car, and your investment fees that really move the needle. 
Okay. Brilliant. Let's do then like a basics 101 of investing. Okay. For people who just now were listening and don't know what an expense ratio is or what you're saying, what you mean when you're saying a low cost fund or a mm -hmm. target date fund, let's talk about it. Yeah. So the typical way that we think about investing is I got to pull the shades turn my room dark, and then somehow all these green numbers fly across my screen. I gotta somehow pick out the P-E ratio and pick the right fun company. That's the movies. <laughs> Real investing, uh, I'll tell you, I spend less than one hour per month on my investments. It's totally automatic. I log in maybe every few months. It, I log in, I look at the number, I go, oh, okay, and then I log out. <laughs> It's boring. It's like watching paint dry. And that's what investing should be. And I'm the same. I love it. That's what a sophisticated investor does. I'm like, if you are using your investments for entertainment, get a dog. Because this is not where you should be finding your joy. For me, the rich life is lived outside the spreadsheet. It's traveling. It's being able to talk like this, try new foods. That's the rich life. But the mechanics of investing are boring and should be boring. So... Let me tell you what investing is. Investing is picking a simple fund, which is a basket of different companies, and it's letting it ride for years and years and years. That's it. So every month, I have money that comes from my paycheck directly into a fund, and it just, every month I buy, let's just say $1,000 worth of that fund. Every month, $1,000, whether it's up, whether it's down, doesn't matter. It's consistent every single month. That's basically an equivalent of dollar cost averaging, slight variation. Why does this work? Because over time, we've seen that the S&P 500 tends to return about 10%. And when you take out inflation, it returns about 7%. 7% per year is a great number to know. Everybody should know this number. 7% per year is what you should compare any other opportunities to. And so I like having this in my back pocket. For example, I recently had a friend, they were being offered the option to buy into a medical partnership. They had to put in like $100,000. So, okay, fine. How much would you get back? What's the return? And they started to calculate it and they asked for some docs and their number was something like 3.5%. Now they had no idea. What is 3.5? Is that good? Is that bad? And I said, well, what's our magic comparison? 7%. And when they looked at that, they realized, oh my God, why would I put my money in here when I could get double the money over the course of the long term in the S&P 500? So that is a general way of looking at investing. Now, there's all these things we can talk about, 401ks, IRAs, like where, which accounts to open up. But what I want you to know about investing and what I want everybody to know is it's simple. It's not complicated. It's actually really boring and it should take you very little time. If you're listening, let me guess. You have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, People who want to know more about you and even where you live. My sister had her data leaked online and because of that, her identity was stolen and it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out. 
just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this, for my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com slash Aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and Aura is spelled A-U-R-A. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash Aura, and I'll also leave the link in the show notes. The other thing to add to that magic 7% number too is if you have debt, if you have student loans at 3%, okay, maybe it's okay to invest some money in the market while you still have those student loans if you're going to be expecting 7%. But if you have credit card debt at 20%, absolutely not. There is no investment that can predictably return more than 20%. I'm so glad you're saying this. People need to hear everybody saying this. The fact that you cannot reliably get 20% returns. And in fact, I recently saw some scammer who we both know online promoting 20% returns. It said 20 in huge, I'm like, how's this guy not incarcerated? 20% returns. And anyone who knows the basics of personal finance, in fact, anyone who's watched this interview knows 7% is your good comparison. So if somebody's promising me 20% returns, I already know it's a lie. It cannot be true. It would be like me going and saying, I can promise you that you can run 40 miles an hour if you use my supplement. You're just like, I know this is a lie. It's impossible. <laughs> and you and I both know that over the course of the long term, it is effectively impossible for 20% returns. You know, the sad thing though is like, it is, most people say to me, Erica, that sounds so boring investing for the long term because they're used to these meme stocks and more exciting things where your neighbor says, oh my gosh, I've made 50% on this. But truthfully, the best way to go is just invest in a low cost S&P 500 index fund, let it ride out over 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Yeah, it is. It's, I, I had this fascinating thing happen. I completely agree. It's really frustrating. It's frustrating for anyone watching when you've gotten really good at something and you realize that deep down, the fundamentals are really quite simple, but nobody believes you. And so fitness is a great example. When I, when I was in college, I was this really skinny Indian guy. And I, just, and I used to joke, oh, I'm just a skinny Indian guy. And I really wish I hadn't said that because it kind of became my identity. Like, oh, I can't put on any muscle. And so eventually I decided to change and I got the help of trainers and friends and I learned how to eat. And I used to think it was just something some people had and I didn't have. And when you feel that way, it's really disempowering, right? Because you're just like, oh, they have that. They have biceps and I don't. And as I learned the skills, same as investing, you learn, oh my gosh, it's actually quite simple. You need to change the way you eat a little bit, train in a disciplined way, et cetera, et cetera. And now when, when I understand that and I look at all this sort of advice that's given for these fancy supplements and you go, this is all bullshit. It's really simple. Same with money. When you look at the stuff that's meme stocks out there and you look at people chasing one thing and then they erase all their tweets and they chase something else and you just go, you've chosen the wrong path like years ago and it will be very difficult for you to unwind that. So if you're watching this, it's actually a much better sign because they've chosen long-term investing, sensible investing. It's a little more boring, but in the end, it's way more profitable. 
Yeah. I think we're told so many lies about money and some of it, we internalize it. So I always used to say investing was only for the rich people. Totally. In my early 20s, I did not even think that I was the type of person who could ever invest. And even that word just seemed so unattainable and so not me. But once you really learn that you only need $50 to start investing. You only need $25 to start investing. You don't need tons of money. Investing is not for the rich. Investing is what is going to make you rich, right? 100%. Yes, 100%. It's such a mind shift to realize I can be investing like everybody else. I once posted that there's this belief we have that in America, we have this belief that the wealthy have access to these secret investments that get all these crazy returns. And I was like, guys, I am wealthy. I get access to private equity, VC, angel, all that stuff. I go, guess what? I put virtually all of my money in S&P and index funds. And people were enraged, enraged. It's one of my most viral threads. They literally came out of the woodwork because it went viral and they're like, this guy is just a rich guy trying to keep us down. I go, no, counterintuitively, I'm actually trying to prevent you from being ripped off by these crazy schemes to take all of your money away. But people want to believe there's some secret because it explains why the ultra-rich are getting access and we are not. Now, I will say, the ultra-rich do have access to certain things, mostly tax benefits that, in my opinion, they should not have. Those should be stripped away. But from a pure investment return perspective, if I had 100 times the money I have, I would invest primarily the same way. Yeah. It's hard to believe. It's hard to believe that actually a person making $50,000 a year can get the same return rate, roughly 7%, as a very sophisticated, wealthy investor with $25 million in the bank. That's almost hard to believe because if we go out and we spend $1,000 on sushi, we'll get better sushi, better service. If we spend $1,000 on a cashmere sweater, we'll get better cashmere. But if you spend $1,000 on investment expense ratios, you will not get better returns. The money will just go out of your pocket into someone else's. Well, and I think the most telling thing is Warren Buffett, who is arguably one of the greatest investors of all time, said in his letter to his shareholders that when he passes away, he's going to put 90% into low-cost S&P 500 index funds and 10% into bonds. What do you think that tells us when the greatest investor, the greatest manager of money out there is saying that he's not going to trust any managers to manage his money? He's going to put it all in the S&P 500. Totally. It's game over when you really internalize that. So- it's a fantastic example. Warren Buffett, David Swenson, all these extremely successful, sophisticated investors telling everyone, look, you cannot compete with the most successful investors. They have armies of analysts. They have access to information that people do not have. And even most of them fail to beat the S&P 500. So just stop playing that game entirely. Get an S&P 500, get an index fund or a target date fund, move along. Yeah. One of the eye-openers from I Will Teach You To Be Rich that I thought was so fascinating was that these professional investors with these big funds, there's a lot of sneaky stuff that goes on behind the scenes to cover the fact that they don't have a good track record. Yes, tons. So this is when you get played. And this is why even as my own personal net worth has increased and my business has increased, I started out the son of immigrants. My immigrant parents moved here from India. 
we didn't have a lot of money. I remember once they needed to get uh, some sort of like certification or stamp or something. They went into the bank and they came out laughing. They walked into the parking lot, back to our van. They la- Why are you laughing coming from bank? And they go, they said they could waive the fee if we had $10,000 in our checking account. And they were just laughing because it's like, who would ever have $10,000? It was unfathomable to my parents. And so I grew up understanding what it's like to need to be frugal, right? We hardly ever ate out. And when we did, it was with a coupon. And so even as my own net worth has increased, I remember that. And I hate to see ordinary people being taken advantage of. And these industries where things are opaque are built to take advantage of ma and pa. And I think about, for example, my mom, who was a school teacher for a long time. And one day I happened to read her brochure, her prospectus. They put her in these piece of shit funds with unbelievable fees. And it was written in a really friendly way. Like it was written in crayon. And I'm like, these teachers don't understand what this means. How could they? They're not financial experts. But they were milking my mom and other people like her. So the games that Wall Street plays are numerous. One of them is they've engineered their fee structure so that average people go, oh, 1%, ah, whatever, it's fine. And they're out there looking for me. Bullshit. Next, survivorship bias. Think about a company launching 20 funds. 18 of them are dog shit and they underperform the S&P 500. So guess what? It's not like this company goes, hey, everybody, here's our report card. We suck at 18 out of 20. You know what they do? They just take them out in the back and shoot them in the head. And the next time they go, our two funds are beating the market. Two out of two, fantastic. You never even know about the other 18 funds. That's called survivorship bias. That's just two of the many games that are played against you. You think you have a chance to go and compete against Wall Street when they've been doing this for decades? No. Opt out of the game entirely, get a low-cost target date fund or index fund, and boom, you will have more money than most of the investors on Wall Street themselves in terms of return rate. Any funds that, I mean, I can envision people are going to be saying, okay, Remy, what do you mean by low-cost fund? Yeah. Like, give me the actual ticker symbol. What do I type in to get it? Totally. So um, there are lots of great low-cost companies. There's Fidelity, Schwab, Vanguard. Any of them are great. In terms of expense ratios, that's really what matters. The fees. You, you can go onto any of them. And I like to start with a target date fund. This is what I tell my family. So they're like, where should we put our money? I go, start with a target date fund. So let's pretend that you are 40 years old. And let's pretend that you're going to retire at 65. Just basic assumptions. So 25 years from now, that would be what year? Roughly 2050. Again, approximately. So we can go on to Vanguard Fidelity Schwab and we can search for the 2050 target date fund, okay? And it would be called like a Vanguard 2050 fund. Fidelity has the same thing, Schwab too. Look at the fees, they're very low. And let me tell you why I like a target date fund. This is, to me, this is one of the most beautiful instruments ever created in finance. It's a fund, like a pie chart. And within that pie chart, your target date fund automatically changes over time. Right now, it will own a lot of stocks, which tend to return pretty well over the long term. But over time, as you get older, it will become more conservative. And that's good because we don't want granny having you know, 95% in equities. We don't want granny doing that. We want it to be a little safer. As you get older, you want to be safer. When you're younger, you want to be a little bit more risk-seeking. That change from 
90% stocks to maybe 85 and lower. It's called rebalancing. And humans absolutely suck at it. They don't rebalance. When they do, they do it all wrong. It's terrible. So you might as well just have a company do it for you automatically. That's how you find the names of these funds. What about people who say, when should I start investing? Should I start investing in a month? Oh, the market looks a bit choppy right now. What do you say? So we've all heard this phrase, don't time the market. And then I'll get 8,000 comments that go, Ramit, I know you say don't time the market, but right now it looks really risky to me. What about interest rates? Oh, there's a calamity coming. That's called timing the market. So there's great research showing that if you try to time the market, you will almost always fail. The best strategy is simply continuing to invest every single month, consistently. Whether it's up, whether it's down, whether the news says things are good or bad, it's irrelevant to you. You are like an oak tree in the wind. Nothing phases you. That's what a sophisticated investor does. Now, the research on this is unbelievable. In a 10 or 15 year study, if you miss approximately the best three or four days of investing, your return drops by something like half. It is unbelievable. That decision to not invest costs people hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so I find this absolutely amazing. We go our entire lives. We agonize over, should I buy this bag of Skittles? We, we tell our friend, oh, make sure you Venmo me that extra $3. We do all this stupid stuff that's worthless. And yet we miss out on hundreds of thousands of dollars because we decide we're smarter than the market. Don't do it. This is exactly what I do every single month my money's going in. This is exactly what sophisticated investors do. I'm sure this is what you do, right? Every month, take emotion out of the equation, automate it, and then you never have to try to invest or decide what the news is about. Boom, your investments are going every single month, first of the month or second of the month, whatever you want, every month. I know you're big on automation as I love it as well. I like being very hands-off. What else are you automating in your finances? I automate everything. Um, I automate the money that comes in. I automatically have money sent to a 401k, an HSA, which by the way, HSAs can be invested. A lot of people don't know that. If you have a health savings account, definitely you can invest thousands every year with a triple tax benefit. After the money comes in, the money is automatically sent to certain savings accounts. And of those savings accounts, they're broken up by certain goals. So when I was starting out, I had one sub savings account called stupid mistakes because I would get parking tickets (laughs) and I would have something break down and whatever. And I just put a little bit of money aside. Now I have different ones. Those would be vacation. My wife and I have one together for a 10 year wedding anniversary. And those things are automated as well. Then my credit cards are automated, right? All of it is automated so that even if I don't look at my finances for two months, my investments are growing, my savings are growing, my bills are automatically paid. And I don't need to maintain the system. The factory is running. I recently went on an anniversary getaway with the husband and it was beautiful. Here's everything I got for free. We got free business class tickets for an international flight, which meant, yep, you guessed it. I got free access to the lounge where we could kick things off with a glass of champagne. Then we got a free stay at a five-star hotel where we could relax and go to the beach. Okay, so now I'm sure you're wondering how I got it for free, and you know I don't gatekeep, so here's the insider knowledge you need to know. I did it by signing up for a free Built credit card. Built is a credit card that lets you earn points just for paying your rent, and there's no extra fee. And when I say free, I mean free. 
There's no annual fee for the credit card, and they don't charge a transaction fee for paying your rent with the card. You'll also earn two times the points on travel and three times the points on dining. Once you get your points, you can transfer them to travel partners like airlines and hotels to then get the free business class flights or five-star hotels like I did. To sign up for this card, go to ericataughtme.com slash built. Erica is with a K and built is B-I-L-T. Or to make it easier, go to the link in the show notes. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash built. One of the brilliant things you said was the HSA and the triple tax benefits. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about an HSA. An HSA, for certain people, you are eligible for having a health savings account. If you are eligible, if you're not sure, just search, ask your HR person. If you do that, you can take the money and invest it pre-tax. You won't pay taxes on the gains. And it is a fantastic benefit. Now, you should remember that that money, there are some restrictions. The money has to be relatively strictly used for health things. But health could be contact lenses. It could be end-of-life care later on in life. There's a variety. It can even be uh, acupuncture in some cases. So HSAs are a fantastic investment. They're typically, typically, not always, typically for young people. And this is, HSA is kind of if you've already done your 401k, your IRA, et cetera. In my book, I cover the ladder of investing. Where should you invest first? Which account? Then which account next? And if you still got money left over, go ahead and do your HSA. Okay, so let's go through the ladder. What's your first account? First would be if you have a 401k with a match, start there. That's free money. So if you're getting a one-to-one match, for example, that's free money. You got to take it. So you put that into the max, meaning whatever your employer matches, put that much for your 401k. Second. Second, uh, Roth IRA, if you're eligible. If you are, fantastic. Third, we can debate, but it's uh, high interest credit card debt. So as you mentioned, if you have 28% debt, pay that off because no investment is going to beat that. Okay. If you still have money left over, you can go and you can do an HSA. And finally, if you still have money left over, it means you have a very high income, open up a taxable account. You can invest as much as you want every month. You know, a lot of people are surprised by that. They did not realize that there's actually no limit to how much you can invest per month. And I'm talking specifically now for high earners. Sometimes they go, oh, I thought my Roth IRA or my IRA had an income limit. Yeah, it does, but you can just open up a regular account and invest as much as you want every month. Yeah, and that just means that you're paying taxes on the money, then you put it in, and when you take it out, you also pay taxes. Yeah, you pay taxes on the gains. It's recommended that you max out all of your tax advantage accounts, your Roth IRA, your 401k, first before you then move through to the taxable brokerage account. Yeah. So my thinking on this is when people talk about taxes, it's very intimidating. It's very overwhelming. Let me tell you my philosophy on taxes. I think first off, you want to decide on a scale of one to 10, how aggressive are you? I told my accountant, if 10 is Al Capone, who's committing tax fraud, I'm a two. I don't want any of that shit. I want to sleep at night. I would rather overpay. I don't care that the government keeps a little extra interest. I don't care about that. So with establishing that, I'm very conservative on taxes. The second thing that I believe about taxes is you want to take any tax advantage accounts you have, like a 401k, a Roth IRA, HSA, anything you can that's low-hanging fruit, go ahead and do it. Max it out. And then number three, beyond that, move on. I consider it a gift to be able to pay taxes for a country where I was raised 
and I can start a business the way I do. So I have zero problem paying a lot of taxes. For me, it's a gift. Oh my gosh, I'm able to make so much money that I have a large tax bill. Fantastic. And so I never let the tax tail wag the dog. Meaning I never start off with a decision to minimize taxes and then build my life around it. I have a rich life and I will take advantage of any low hanging fruit for tax minimization, like a 401k. Beyond that, I want to live a rich life and optimizing taxes has steeply diminishing returns. Are there any other low hanging fruit for tax optimization, maybe stuff that you're doing for your kids that might be interesting to share? If you have a W-2 income, like you have a, a nine to five job, you have limited tax advantaged accounts. And they're actually quite good though. I mean, 401k, IRA, there, there's a variety of pretty good ones, but there's a limit. And people who tend to become frustrated are people who are earning mid six figures. So they're making like 200,000 to 600,000. I mean, it's a small amount of people, but they go, well, you know, okay, I contributed like a little bit here and there, but I'm still paying a massive amount of taxes. I get it. The next level of tax advantages would be starting a business. So there's tax advantages for those. Like there's some minor ones for me, it's fine. There's real estate, which has some tax advantages, although it has costs as well. Same with a business. Like I said, I take advantage of the low hanging fruit and then I move on with my life. It's yeah. not, I do not wake up at night thinking like, oh my God, how do I squeeze out an extra 0.025% tax savings? I don't want to live that life. Yeah. We've talked about how you really don't want to fuss over saving that dollar, but you do want to fuss over saving the $15,000, $30,000. What are the other main conversations that we need to be having around money to save those big amounts? Okay. The concept here is you want to ask $30,000 questions, not $3 questions. And counterintuitively, most of us spend our lives asking $3 questions. Appetizers, coffee, feeling guilty about- Couponing. Like, why? <laughs> and so $30,000 questions are questions like, am I automating my savings and my investments? Meaning every single month, do I have money automatically going in? Here's a $30,000 tactic you can use right now. If you increase your savings rate 1% per year, and if you increase your investment rate 1% per year, that will be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars to you. For example, if you currently save 5% of your take-home pay and you go, okay, that's all I can afford right now. But December of this year, I'm setting up a calendar reminder and I'm going to add 1% to make it 6%. If you do that every single year, you will have hundreds of thousands of dollars more and you will not even feel it because 1% is so gradual. Do the same for investing. That is how you gradually accumulate massive amounts of money. And you blink your eyes and you realize, oh my gosh, it's been three, four, five years and look at how much is in this account. That's a $300,000 question. Another one, uh, am I paying my debt off? Let's talk about debt for a second. When I talk to people about debt, 90% of them do not know how much they owe. 95% of them do not know when their debt will be paid off. This is very simple and you need to know this. If you have credit card debt, student loan debt, mortgage debt, go online, search for debt payoff calculator, plug in your numbers. If you don't know, make the debt company tell you all the information and then you will know the exact month and year it will be paid off. If you have something like a mortgage or a large student loan, sometimes paying $100 more per month can shave seven years off that debt. So I want you to be able to see that. That's a $300,000 question. Other things would be your asset allocation. In other words, what is the mix of your investments? 
that's worth more than all the coffee you will ever buy in your life combined. So these are the kind of questions we want to ask. And there's really only about five or 10 of them, big wins. If you get those right, you can buy an extra dessert. You can stay for an extra night at a hotel. You never have to worry about that stuff. For debt, I want to touch on that because I know a large portion of my audience does have debt. Obviously, I had $200,000 of debt. And for months after graduation, I did not know I had $200,000 of debt. I knew it was a lot, but I had no idea what the loans were, what the interest rates were. So my very first step was going to the government websites and figuring out what actually I had. And then you're right, that second step was figuring out when is my magical debt payoff date and how can I accelerate it so that I don't pay my student loans for the next 30 years, Yeah. right? What's step three? Well, uh, step three is to automate the money. So every month from your paycheck, you will automatically send a certain number towards your debt. You should never have to try to save money. You should never have to try to pay off debt and you should never have to try to invest. That should happen automatically. It's like, Erica, did you try to brush your teeth today? No, you just did it. Investing is even easier. You set it up and then it runs in the background. I think the real question of that debt and what's behind you not even knowing how much you owe is step zero, which is the emotional fear of debt, right? When you graduate, it doesn't surprise me. You knew it was a lot. You knew it was bad, but who really wants to open up those envelopes? Nobody. No one. Yeah, and that's why when I meet people who are in debt, they often have envelopes really high. I get it. I have stuff in my life that whenever I get an envelope, it's bad news. I go, I don't want to open that. Put it over there and I never open it. It's not a healthy, it's not a healthy solution. So the first step is understanding that some people have debt. That's okay. Once you understand the mechanics of debt, it's often surprisingly easy to make a plan for that debt. And when I talk to people who have $100,000 in debt, $300,000, for example, in dental school debt, and they go, this is just overwhelming. Like there's no possibility. And then I'll often show them like, here are the levers you have and you can actually accelerate this by years. It makes people feel good to know that they can take control. And most of us feel really good. Even if it's gonna take 15 years, at least we know the process has begun. What about when people come to you and say, Ramit, I don't even have enough money to put $100 aside to invest or pay off my debt each month? Well, that's, that's a really tough conversation. So oftentimes, if they are coming to ask for help, that's actually a great sign because some people, many people aren't even ready to ask for help. And I think with your videos and your podcast and lots of others in books, there's so much information, but we have to be ready. When they come, they go, I have no extra money. You talk about automation, I have no $100. I go, okay, let's take a look. So I give them a copy of my conscious spending plan and I like that because it's four simple numbers. You don't need a million numbers to track. It's four numbers. And, you know, they've never done this before. So they never looked at their money in this way. When they see that, first of all, they often realize, oh my gosh, I actually do have extra money. You have to understand that most of us are not robots. We're not sitting there calculating everything. I would say it's more accurate to describe us as we operate our money based on vibes. Like today it's raining. I don't know, I might want to wear that jacket. That's pretty much the way we operate with our money. It's kind of crazy. People go, what are you talking about? Right now, um, I talk to so many couples and they go, it's 
times are really tough. Inflation is crazy at the grocery store. You wouldn't believe it. I go, oh, really? Um, do you actually track how much you spent before inflation and now? They go, no. But I just, you know, I, have a, I go, you're literally, that's how you're operating with money. And we need to get a little bit more rigorous. So oftentimes we will discover $100, $200, in some cases, a lot more every month that they just had no idea about. If they truly have cut to the bone, there are people in that situation. The honest answer is if they want to improve their financial situation, they've got to earn more. And I think that part of the conversation is often neglected in money. We talk so much about cutting back, but there's a limit to how much you can cut. There's no limit to how much you can earn. What do you think people need to know when it comes to earning more? Number one, you can. Even if you're a teacher, right? There's the most common thing I go, people go, you talk about earning more, but I'm a teacher. Well, there's options too. You could become a tutor on the side. You could start a side business. You could switch uh, professions or even industries. There's so many options, but you have to decide that earning more is important to me. Second, if you work at a job, uh, you can negotiate your salary. Big, big. You know, I was raised negotiating. I was raised in the womb negotiating. <laughs> and so to be able to negotiate, you don't just walk in your boss's office and you go, hey, I'd like to have some more money. They're like, get the hell out of here. Salary negotiation is a multi-month process. Let me give you a quick version of what I would do. I would set up a meeting with my boss. I would send a note to her. I would say, I'd really like to discuss my career. I'd love to set some time aside. Can we set up 30 minutes? And you go in there, you go, you know, I'd love to be a top performer in this role. I think I'm doing a good job based on my last review, but I'd like to do an amazing job. What do you think it would take? So you have this discussion. They might give you 10 things. You go, you know, I'd really like to boil it down to three things that I can execute on and keep you updated. And I wanna make your job easier. Your boss is loving this. Nobody ever says this. Everyone's always coming there asking and giving them their problems. You're going in there saying, I wanna make your life easier. She's loving it. So you walk out of there with three crisp things. Oh, I wanna increase conversion rate from 1% to 1.25%, blah, blah, blah. Send her, and at the end of that conversation, you go, I'm gonna work on these for the next six months. I'm gonna keep you updated. And if I deliver on these, I'd love to discuss a compensation adjustment, but let's save that for later. They go, all right, whatever, sounds good to me. So you send them a written notice. You are managing up, right? You know what it's like to manage up. Yep. And again, remember how many people do this? Virtually nobody. So you send a summary, I'm excited to work on this. Now, every week or every two weeks, you send them an update. Friday, you say, hey, as discussed, here are the three KPIs. Here's what I'm working on. Here's the results so far. And at the end, Let's assume you hit those numbers because you need to if you want to get paid more. You actually need to be a top performer. And you walk in, you go, you know what? I'd like to discuss uh, the work that we planned on six months ago. So you sit down for a meeting and this is where I love it. Oh my God, I love this meeting. You walk in, you say, you know, and you pull out this briefcase. I do it theatrically, like really theatrically. It can be a folder, can be an actual <laughs> briefcase. You go, six months ago, we discussed these three KPIs. I'd like to give you some updates on them. Boom. 1% is now 1.35%, resulting in an extra $1,275,000 a year in sales, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you say, I'd also like to discuss a compensation adjustment. Again, reach into that thing. <laughs> Boom. According to my research, which you've done on Glassdoor, Indeed, Salary, and all the other places, somebody in my role delivering my performance would be paid $78,000. I'm currently paid 70. I'd like to discuss an adjustment. Now you have really set yourself up for success. You have a very good chance of getting a raise. If you don't get that raise, you can discuss it with them. 
But now you know what you are worth on the open market and you may want to consider moving to where you're paid what you're worth. That was such a good summary of that negotiating the raise part. So I know you have some things that are your money rules that you stick to. Tell me about them. I made a list of 10 money rules because every given day we're faced with 100 different decisions, right? Should I buy a medium or a large? Should I get two pizzas or one? And at a certain point, you need to have some sort of values, some rules to guide these decisions. So as an example, I have a very simple one that's save at least 20% of gross income every year. Fine, that's kind of boring. You could adjust it for your own. That's just my rule. But I have another rule that they become really fun. So one of them is anytime I take a flight over four hours, business class. Now, if you're listening to this, you go, this guy's insane or must be nice. Well, that's my rule. And so I made this rule because after flying for many years, I decided, you know what? I don't fly that often. When I do, I want it to be fun. I can afford it. And so I'm not going to sit there and agonize over, is it seat 2A or 12B? I'm just going to make a rule and it's done. So now if I'm booking flights or my assistant's booking flights, we know the exact seat, the exact plane, everything that I fly in. I made this rule. Wait, are you paying cash? Yeah. Or I might use points, but the best point system is having cash to get on the flight you want. Do you think I'll ever reach that point where I'm like, oh, I'll pay $2,000 for a business class flight? Now I can't, like, I can't even stomach it. I don't <laughs> think I could ever Did pay you see that? The, I like the physical reaction you just had. So <laughs> 100% financially, yes, but psychologically is a different question. So if you, let me give you an example from my own life. When I used to get on planes... Uh, I would actually walk, you know, to, to the back of the plane and I would laugh. Oh, stupid people sitting in the front paying four times the price. We're all getting to the same place anyway. Ha ha ha. And what I should have done was to get curious. Be like, wow, if they can afford that, why are they spending it on that seat when we're all getting to the same place? I didn't understand it. And I was too closed-minded to ask the question. Mm -hmm. But you can apply that. I call it the D to C principle from disparagement to curiosity. It's really easy to disparage eating at a fancy restaurant or wearing a certain type of clothes or whatever. You go, that's stupid. I would never do that if I had X dollars. And the truth is you never know what you would do. Yeah. So at a certain point, your, your values change. I love Taco Bell. Well, at least I grew up eating it. And for me, it was like, oh, I feel so good if I got this bargain, right? Taco Bell. I don't look at food that way anymore. And I think we all change naturally in certain parts of life, but with money, we play small. Even though we may have enough to change what we eat or how frequently we travel, we often are still rooted in how we grew up. Mm -hmm. And I want everyone to think about the current season of life. Number one, what are my actual numbers? Like, do I have enough to even be able to afford this? If not, let's not talk about it, let's save for it. Second, if I have enough, is it important to me? What's my money dial and what do I love spending money on? And if it happens to be nice flights, good. You should spend extravagantly on the things you love as long as you cut costs mercilessly on the things you don't. I agree with that. What's another money rule? Okay, another money rule I have is unlimited spending on books, on anything relating to health, and on any of my friends' charity fundraisers. So I created this Ramit's book buying rule years ago because when I was in college, I had a scholarship that allowed me to buy unlimited books. And I felt like 
a kid in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. <laughs> I could go, I love books. So I go into the bookstore, I could just get anything and boom, I could take it. And after I graduated, I told myself, you know what, I wanna keep that going. And when I thought about it, I thought, how many books do I buy per year? You know, I buy a lot, but in the grand scheme, it's not that much. And to be able to access an author's knowledge for 15 bucks, if I can learn one thing, it's worth it. And so I have a rule, Ramit's book buying rule. If I even think about a book, buy it. Same thing with a charity fundraiser, because my wife and I did a fundraiser and it really mattered to us who showed up and who contributed. And I realized that when my friends do one of those, I want to be the first donating. I want to donate the max. Um, so those are the things. I, I like these rules to fit you like a glove. Yours might not be business class. My book buying rule is the opposite, actually. What? I was, what? Feeling, I was feeling so guilty as I was listening to that. And I literally made a video about like 10 things I will not spend my money on. I don't spend money on books okay. because I can get them all for free at the local library. Nothing wrong with that. Libby. Yeah. I can get the audiobook. I okay. can get the Kindle version. Nothing wrong with that. What do you spend a lot of money on? Health. I agree with you on health. Yeah. Okay, great. So like massages. I used to think, oh my gosh, if I could get one massage a year, that would be incredible. Mm. And I remember I had this friend whose mother had a subscription to Massage Envy where she could do one massage per month. And I just thought like, she must be so rich. Like she's living the life. So massages now I spend, you know, I try to get like one or two a week. Whoa, are you serious? Yeah. Okay, so like, I'm like, whoa, okay, this is crazy. <laughs> I love hearing anyone's rich life where they've really dialed it in and it fits them like a handmade glove, right? So for you, two massages a week, I was not <laughs> expecting that. I was like, okay, that's awesome. Not for me, but I love that that's for you. If you looked at my spending, you'd be like, this guy drives a really old car. I can't believe it. Why does he do that? Um, I don't really care about like fancy organic fish or whatever. It's not my thing, but I spend a huge amount of money on travel, really nice hotels. I like nice clothes and I like convenience. You look great. Thank you. So <laughs> that brings me a lot of joy and it makes no sense to other people. And that's exactly how it should be. No, I love it. Yeah, you're the, you, honestly, the, the massages thing is quite an interesting story. I've found that massages are the time when I'm the most creative. So I don't just like lay down and fall asleep on my massage. I get massaged and then throughout it, I send like 10, 15 voice memos to myself. I get all of my TikTok ideas while I'm getting massaged. I get all of these like business ideas while I'm getting massaged because something about just like laying down and not being able to move, my brain, it just gets so creative. Wait, this is very interesting. My wife is always trying to get me to get a massage and I'm like, it's boring. I don't need, I don't, the only time I get a massage is when I get injured, which is of course the opposite way <laughs> of what you should do. I'm like, I don't want this. It's so boring. But now you're giving me a new way to think about it. Yeah. And like my massage lady thinks I'm crazy because like about 15 times throughout the massage, I like lift my head up and start talking to my phone. <laughs> I've never seen this in my life. Yeah. One time we were traveling and uh, my wife was like, let's go to this massage place. And I was like, ah. All right. And she was like, you should get a facial. I'm like, what is that? So she's like, hey, go get it. I, I go in there, right? And I thought they were going to put like some mask on my face and then leave me alone for an hour. I was like, sweet. I can like play on my phone for one hour. No, they sit me down and then they do, I don't know what they did. And they were like, sit here. I'm like, what about my phone? They're like, you can't use a phone. And they <laughs> left. I was like, I do not want to be here right now. I feel like I'm just sitting here with nothing to do for one hour. It was absolute <laughs> torture for me, right? Of course, I'm totally addicted to my phone. 
So that does sound awful, actually. So I don't even still know if that's a normal facial or what, but I was like, I got to get out of here. And I have never gotten one of those again. <laughs> so for anyone recommending, including my wife, please don't ever send me there. Okay. So I also know that you have specific travel rules. What are some of those? My first travel rule is any place we go, four nights minimum. Four nights because the ultimate luxury is leisure time. And so we never need to rush. We know that if one day we feel like just relaxing, we can do that. And so we want to keep it very leisurely, always knowing we can always come back. Uh, Another rule that we created for ourselves was tip $20 a day for housekeeping. And we feel very thankful to be able to tip generously, especially to people who are not often recognized. And then just logistically, when we travel, we'll often go for a longer period of time. And so we think about the cadence. We want to start in a city and end in a resort. Uh, In other words, start where it's busy. We might be doing food tours and checking stuff out. And then at the end, it's much more loungy. So that might be our style. And here's a rule I have developed, which surprises a lot of people. Whenever I take the price of a hotel, I add 50% to get the true rate. So if a hotel's sticker price is $300 a night, when you factor in taxes, tips, maybe room service, you got to add 50% to get the true amount. So a $300 a night hotel actually is going to cost you $450. This is mind-blowing, and this really shows how much phantom cost that we don't think about can get you. Better to plan for it ahead of time than to be surprised at the end. Yeah. No, I've seen this recently. It was always when you go to Vegas hotels, you expect that there's going to be a $20 or $30 resort fee. Yeah. Now I'm going to New York hotels and there's a resort fee. And I'm saying, what resort? What resort? Like, this is a closet room with no pool, no gym. Like, what resort are we talking about here? Totally. But don't forget the tax, 38% taxes. Who even thinks about that? And so I always think, I would rather know the true amount of my big purchases, house, car, travel, investments, and then be able to plan accordingly. Because I don't want to get surprised at the end of life or at the end of my trip. I want to know exactly how much I'm paying and then plan for it. Yeah. One of my favorite things about what you teach is just you have to spend lavishly on the things that really matter to you. Everything else though, cut it out. Like if it does not matter to you, you should not be spending tons of money on it. Yeah, once you have a clear vision for what's important to you and what you truly love and you're honest about it, it becomes much easier to say, you know what? That's not serving my rich life. Out of here. So officially today, you have your Netflix show coming out. Are you so excited? Oh, I'm super excited about this show. It comes out April 18th. It's called How to Get Rich on Netflix. And it's all about showing behind the scenes of how to change people's behaviors with money. If you could only give someone three money tips, what would they be? Number one, spend extravagantly on the things you love, maybe more than you ever thought, as long as you cut costs mercilessly on the things you don't. Number two, investment costs matter. You can become extremely wealthy if you simply set up automatic investing and let it run. And number three would be, you have to be honest with yourself and with everyone around you. If you really love clothes and that's where you want to spend money, great. If you love travel, fantastic. You've got to be honest with yourself and how much you can afford and what the people around you will say. I love this so much. The closing tradition, the podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Ramit Taught Me. So what do you want people to be able to walk away saying, Ramit taught me this? Ramit taught me 
that I should feel good about money. That money is not meant to make me feel bad. That money is meant to help me live my rich life. That would be my dream. Thank you. I loved this. Thank you. <laughs> Ramit's show, How to Get Rich, premieres today, April 18th on Netflix. I'm going to leave a link in the show notes. Make sure to check it out because I know I will be. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, it would mean a lot if you could take a moment to leave a review for the podcast. It really helps support the work that we're doing. Thank you for spending your time with me today, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.